0: I fear not the dark itself, but what may lurk within it. Welcome to Lurk, bringing you creepy, strange, and bone-chilling stories, with your host, Jamie Jackson. Hey, Lurkers, welcome to this week's episode. This is the episode that I was supposed to release last Friday, so you're going to have two new episodes this week. We're going to have this episode, and then we're also going to have our Christmas Eve ghost story episode. The ghost story episode will either be released Friday, or it will come out on actual Christmas Eve. So for this episode's topic, we're going to be looking at two mysterious disappearances, Uh, missing 411 cases if you will. One has a happy ending and one does not. They both involve children just to give you a heads up. So the first one we're going to talk about is the disappearance of a four and a half year old boy named Alfred Bilehartz who went missing while camping with his family in Rocky Mountain National Park during the Independence Day holiday. Rocky Mountain National Park is about 415 square miles, containing meadows, alpine lakes, and towering mountain peaks. There are 300 miles of hiking trails. The park is home to many animals, including elk, bighorn sheep, mule deer, foxes, lynx, cougar, moose, and black and grizzly bears. The Bile family, along with some family friends, were camping about a quarter of a mile west of the Fall River Lodge, just south of the west exit of the current Lawn Lake Trailhead, just below the Horseshoe Falls. On July 3, 1938, the Beilharts family woke up bright and early to start their day. William Beilharts, Alfred's father, went over to a nearby stream to wash up, and Alfred followed him. Orrin Bronson and Walter Hansen, family friends, were about 500 feet away, also freshening up in the stream. Alfred and his father finished before Orrin and Walter. William, the dad, headed back to camp, and Alfred headed over to Orrin and Walter to walk back to camp with them. When Orrin and Walter arrived at camp, it was noticed that Alfred wasn't with them. He had gone missing somewhere between the time his father William had headed to camp and when Orrin and Walter returned. The campers began searching for him immediately. There were over 12 people searching. Everyone was convinced that they would find him quickly, as he couldn't have gone far in such a short amount of time, and he would undoubtedly hear the dozen or so people calling his name. After searching the area with no luck, they contacted the ranger at the Fall River Ranger Station, who called in the Civilian Conservation Corps, or CCC. The CCC was a work relief program created as part of Roosevelt's New Deal. They were called in to help with the search effort. Within 45 minutes, over 100 CCC members arrived and began searching. On July 4th, bloodhounds from the Colorado State Prison were brought in to aid in the search, but they were unable to pick up Alfred's scent. Rangers were operating under the assumption that Alfred had fallen into the nearby river and drowned. The decision was made to dam and divert the river. On July 5th, CCC members used sandbags, rocks, and logs to divert and drain the river, and the searchers used grappling hooks and pikes to search the riverbed. They searched the drained riverbed eight separate times with no result. They installed a wire net, hoping to catch evidence, but nothing was collected. They also dynamited beaver dams. Nothing was found. Rangers were convinced his body could not have passed all five beaver dams. They dragged the river again to be sure, but again there was nothing there. They searched the river for five straight days and found no sign of Alfred. They were now convinced that there was no way Alfred was in the river. The Biohartzes told rangers they were certain he had been abducted. They knew their son wouldn't leave his family. They called in more bloodhounds who followed a scent 500 feet uphill. Several different dogs followed the same scent, but it led nowhere. That Sunday, when Alfred disappeared, William J. Eales and his wife were out hiking at Mount Chaplin in the Devil's Nest area. They had stopped to rest when they spotted a small boy standing on a large boulder above them. Mr. Ills climbed up to the area where they had seen the boy, but he was gone. Mr. Ills said there was no way a small boy could have made that climb on his own. This gave weight to the possible kidnap theory. Searchers discounted the sighting because they didn't think he could travel that distance in such a short amount of time. That's similar to what happened in the case of Dennis Martin. I think it's episode four, and in that case, there was a sighting a little bit of a distance away from where he was last seen, and people said there was no way he could have made that trip. It wasn't, wasn't true. During the search, there was a soiled bandage found in an abandoned cabin. Alfred's mother told police that Alfred had a blister on his foot when they first arrived at camp and she had used a similar bandage on it. The FBI tested the bandage to determine if it was the same kind that Mrs. Bilehart's had. There was no information on the outcome of that testing, so I'm guessing there was nothing shocking to come from it. It seems like it was something that would be a pretty common thing. Probably the same type of bandage. Animal attack was ruled out. The sheriff said, "'I don't think there's any animal up there that would attack a child.'" Not to mention an animal attack would have left some signs. And, Orrin and Walter, the family friends, really weren't very far away. If an animal had attacked attacked Alfred, they would have seen or heard something. After ten days, the search was called off. There was another sighting of Alfred in the state of Nebraska. A Mrs. Lynch from Big Spring, Nebraska, allegedly saw Alfred and an unknown man walking along the highway as she and her husband were driving by. She told her brother-in-law, who contacted the Denver police. The brother-in-law said she was positive the boy was the one whose picture she saw. There's no information about whether or not the sighting was looked into. In November 1938, a man in overalls hand-delivered a ransom letter to Mr. Bilehart's. The letter, in part, read, We have gone out west. We are now out of money. Your boy has not taken to us. We will return him to you if you will secure $500 in old dollar, $5, and $10 bills and place them in a kettle at the corner of East 32nd Avenue and Syracuse Street. Mr. Bylehart's contacted the police and a sting was set up. Mr. Bylehart's left a note in the kettle asking for proof of life of his son. Afterwards, a car pulled up and a man and a dog got out while a woman was sitting in the car. Alfred's older brother, Matthew, yelled stop to the man and took off after him. The man took off but was later stopped at the barricade. He claimed he was just out walking his dog. The ransom letter was determined to be a hoax. There have been no other sightings of Alfred Bilehart's. He was eventually declared dead and there are no active searches for him. As far as my thoughts on this case, I agree that he most likely didn't end up in the river. The extensive searches should have turned up something had he fallen in and drowned, but there was absolutely nothing found. No remains, no clothing, nothing. I tend to believe that he was abducted. I think those sightings, at least the one in the park, was Alfred. I'll note that there was one piece of information that said the boy sighted by those hikers disappeared from view as though he had been yanked back but since I only found that in one place I'm not certain I'm, I'm not I'm not certain on the validity and that's going to bring us to our next case the disappearance of keith parkins now this one has a good outcome i thought it best to end on a high since we are in the holiday season Keith Parkins was about two and a half years old when he, his parents Edna and Alan Parkins, and his two brothers, Michael, age six, and Terry, age five, were visiting their maternal grandparents for Easter in April 1952. The grandparents lived on a cattle ranch in Ritter, Oregon. At this time of the year, it was cold and there was snow on the ground. On Wednesday, April 9, 1952, the three boys, Keith and terry and michael went down to the barn to see a new calf around noon their mother edna called them in for lunch michael and terry entered the house but keith did not when their mom asked where keith was michael and terry said he was coming and that he had gone around the barn the long way edna sent the two boys to get their brother but they couldn't find him their mother also went to look but there was no sign of keith Keith's mother was worried and immediately called authorities. By 2 p.m. a search was started. The search grew until nearly every man from Ritter and nearby Long Creek were involved. Even some of Alan Parkin's co-workers from the Washington State Penitentiary came to help. Mrs. Parkin mentioned that the search wasn't your typical organized search that most people know of today, but the men knew what they were doing. They lined up shoulder to shoulder, spread out but within shouting distance, and searched the area slowly. Edna Parkins said that her son Keith had no medical issues, and though she couldn't say he was experienced in hiking, he did live in a rural area and was familiar with the outdoors. A 150 men searched into the night. The weather was cold, temperatures were well below freezing. At some point, one of the searchers found child-sized footprints that walked through a herd of cattle about four miles from where Keith was last seen. As the search continued, the terrain became rugged and more snow-covered. Keith wasn't dressed for the frigid night temperatures. He was only wearing a shirt, overalls, jacket, and a hat with ear flaps. Then, at 6.45 a.m., in an area known as Skull Canyon, a searcher found Keith. He was lying face down in the snow, his jacket and hat were lying in the snow nearby, and his overalls had been torn. Alan Parkins, Keith's father, was close by and ran to his son. He thought he was dead because he was stiff and cold and his eyes were closed, but Keith was alive. His father rushed Keith to the nearest airfield, where he was flown by private plane to the hospital at Pendleton. After a few hours of arriving at the hospital, Keith regained consciousness and asked for water. Keith Parkins made a full recovery. But there are still some interesting things about his disappearance. The location where Keith was found was about nine miles from his grandparents' house, as the crow flies, but the actual hiking distance is over 12 miles. Keith's father said that Keith crossed at least one icy creek and had to plow through snowdrifts to reach his destination his father also said keith must have been running most of the way in order to cover so much distance survivalist les stroud attempted the same journey that keith parkins would have taken stroud said that the track was hard for him to make and he's a trained survivalist from the time that keith was last seen playing at the barn and the time he was missing it was only about 10 to 15 minutes and then his mother was out looking for him. The area was a cattle ranch, which means open pasture land. How was Keith not seen by his mother? How did he not hear her or see her? The only visible injury that Keith sustained were some scratches to his face and arms. Keith also mentioned something about a cat scratching him. This led some people to think that a mountain lion grabbed Keith and took off, but that the search party interrupted the cat and it moved further away with Keith before eventually dropping him. I'm pretty sure this is a crap theory. I don't believe this even slightly. Mountain lions grab their prey in the head and neck area. There are typically puncture wounds in the head and neck. There are also typically punctures to the jugular. Mountain lions do not carry off live prey for 12 miles and then leave it unkilled and uneaten. It it doesn't happen. Keith has no memory of what happened to him after leaving the barn. In our last two episodes, we covered the Allagash abduction, and I mentioned in one of the two episodes, it was a two-parter, I mentioned that reading the book made me think of a missing 411 case. This is the case. I recommend listening to those episodes, but basically one of the men mentioned in that Allagash abduction book that he had ended up in a hole during a snowstorm when he was a kid, and that he remembered having alien creatures looking down at him from the top of the hole. His grandfather eventually found him, but he was pretty cold and in danger of hypothermia. It was mentioned that sometimes it seems like aliens place people into situations to offer an explanation for missing time. So, my thought is, and what I thought when I read that, I immediately thought of this story could that be what we're looking at here? Honestly, I think aliens is a better explanation than a mountain lion carrying him around for over 12 miles and not doing any damage to him other than some basic scratches. And if I use my grandson as a reference point, he's three, he's used to hiking in the outdoors. I find it hard to believe that a child that age would travel 12 miles in 19 hours. We aren't talking a flat walk on pavement. And hell, if we were, I still wouldn't think they could do it. At about half to three quarters of a mile, my grandson wants to rest or get a piggyback ride. He will continue hiking, but then the request for a rest or stopping or being carried increases. It's like every 10 feet. He wants to take a rest. He wants to stop constantly, and he's three, so he's right around the age of Keith Parkins. The terrain grew more rugged. This was the mountains. There were hills and valleys, at least one icy creek. I just can't see this trek happening with someone his age, not without some kind of assistance. For you parents out there or people with siblings or nieces and nephews, think about it. Do you think at that age around 3, two and a half to 3, that your child or the child in your life would continuously and persistently travel 12 miles in the freezing cold in gear that is not going to keep him warm, do you think they're going to be physically capable of doing that? I mean, my grandson sometimes can't walk around the block without wanting me to put him on my shoulders. Well, that's going to do it for this episode. Sorry it was a little shorter than it normally is. Sorry that it is a week late, basically. There are lots of things going on around here because of the impending holiday. I honestly will say I have never been so unprepared for Christmas as I am this year. I don't know if it's this year, which has been a real doozy, if it's the culmination of the past two years, because let's face it, 2020 sucked monkey balls, 2021 wasn't a whole heck of a lot better, and this year has just been crap since day one practically. It's been two solid years of crap. So is it the stress from that building up? I have no idea. None. Anyway, I will report that this evening I pretty much finished my shopping. It is the 21st of December when I'm recording this. As a reminder, there will be another episode released. It will either be out Friday or it will be coming out Saturday on Christmas Eve. That is the Christmas Eve Ghost Stories. Remember, you can find Lurk wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts or at lurkpodcast.com where you'll find episodes and links to our social media accounts. If you like what you hear, tell a friend. And if you have a moment, consider giving us a five-star review. And until next time, keep lurking.